Welcome to the Minds of the Early Church podcast. This podcast seeks to understand and develop the way of thinking of the early church, especially its spiritual and intellectual insights, in order to guide us in our time. Developing this way of thinking in ourselves will also give us new ways of navigating a quickly changing world and will allow us to engage the modern world in a fresh, exciting, and authentic way. The Human Being What is the human being? Modernity has had a very difficult time trying to define what that is. The more cynical see us as nothing more than a skilled animal on top of the food chain. On the flip side, others see humans as fundamentally different from the animals. To illustrate, one time I was offering my students a chance to come up with ideas to debate in class as practice for their argumentation skills to be used ultimately for writing an argumentative essay. Someone put forward that we should debate the nature of humanity. After this, a young man, who was very bright, asked the question whether humans are animals. He mentioned that some had told him that humans are not animals. A young lady sitting next to him took offense and said, No, we're not. This was still months before the planned debate, which I hate to report never took place. But another time we revisited the idea of topics to debate, and the topic came up again. The two who were still sitting next to each other, started arguing again. The young lady adamantly said, We're not animals. He responded politely, We're the dominant species. What the two did not know is that they were repeating the same debate that has held the minds of the modern world and trying to define what a human being is. Are we animals or are we something altogether different? Yet the modern issue has gone farther than this. Some see humanity as irreducible beyond race, gender, and sexuality. Those who see it in this way have not realized that by doing this they have created subspecies of human beings. These classifications and people's insistence on being viewed in these terms has created an environment of tension and frequent fighting because if humans are irreducible beyond these, then the whole matter is a matter of competition, since species compete against each other for resources. All races will be at war with each other. Men and women will fight against each other for desired goals, whether it be jobs or roles in the family. Yet, people have been speculating on the nature of human beings since time immemorial. In the ancient world, Mesopotamian and Greek mythology taught that human beings were created to be the slaves and playthings of the gods, that ultimately came about due to disharmony and violence between the gods. Later, as philosophy arose, the Greeks came up with many conceptions of the nature of human beings. One philosophy posited that the human being is a composite of soul and body, and the body is the prison of the soul. Who we really are is to be found in our soul. The body doesn't matter in the end. This was the conception of Platonic philosophy. Another philosophy argued that man is a political animal, meaning man is an animal whose nature is to live in a polis, that is, a city. This organization was much more complex than every other observed form of life, and this required effective reasoning to keep it together. Humanity was characterized by its ability to reason. This was the conception of Aristotelian philosophy. 
Yet another philosophy argued that humans do not have a soul, but man is composed purely of matter, and is a minute part of the universe and is stuck in its cycles without free will. As such, the only thing one can do is to come to peace with this fact and not be disturbed by it. This was the conception of Stoic philosophy. The philosophy of Epicureanism, on the other hand, argued that man is a bundle of particles, called atoms, that collide with each other meaninglessly, but with some type of irregularity. This irregularity and collision of atoms leads to the formation of all things we see, including humans. Humans are the result of this, and any type of uniqueness, or that which we could call a soul, was the result of the purposeless bombardments of atoms against each other. There is no soul, but rather a character that emerges due to the parts working together in harmony. Also, because of that irregularity in the collision of atoms, humans truly had a free will. Therefore, they could make decisions to choose different ways to happiness. Their philosophy then focused on the different types of pleasures and pains, and sought to reduce pain and maximize pleasure. Yet the pleasure they made their goal is not what we conceive of as pleasure today. As you can see, most secular conceptions of humanity today are similar to one or more of the philosophies described above. In addition, these philosophies had developed moral conclusions and ultimate goals for life based on their premises. This necessarily must be the case, because where we come from, what our nature is, and where we are going have an impact on how we live in the present. With that said, the early church was very familiar with all these philosophies and engaged and challenged them because Christianity had its own teaching on what the human being is. This comes naturally too, because if Christianity's main teachings can be summed up, it can be summed up in these three. 1. The nature of God. 2. The nature of man. And 3. The interaction between the two and this finds its focus in the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ. So how is the human being described in the Bible? On the very first page of the Bible, we learn of the nature of God and the nature of man and their interaction. God creates the world out of an act of will and intention. Further, what he creates is good. Interestingly, God has no physical attributes mentioned here. All we know of God are that he thinks, he sets a purpose for all things he creates, he speaks, he creates, he does things with order, and he judges the value of things. Then we come to humanity that is created at the end of all things, and it says that they have been created in his image and likeness. But how can this be the case? God has no physical attributes, so how can we be his image? This is because we reflect the attributes we saw with God, none of which was physical, but immaterial. We too can think. We too can set purpose for things beforehand. We speak. We are creative, but with the materials we already have. We can do things in order, and we can judge the value of things. All these things are attributes of reason, of the mind. Further, all humans were created in his image, as it says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. Genesis 1, verse 27. 
This essential reality is the unifying factor between all humans. Humans are irreducible beyond this, the image of God, which is reason, the mind. Yet the human being was also described in similar fashion to the animals, being commanded to be fruitful and multiply. But also, humans were given a unique command in accordance with the nature of reason, which is to have dominion over the earth. Therefore, Genesis 1 clearly shows that humans are both in the likeness of God and also in the likeness of animals. That idea is further developed throughout the Bible, and in the early church was used to engage different philosophical systems to come to an understanding of what humans are and its implications for life. By the time we get to the early church, we find there were a variety of conceptions floating around in the Greco-Roman world of what human beings are, including those mentioned earlier. The church fathers took Greek observations on human life, dialogued with them, critiqued them, and determined what aspects of Greek philosophy were true observations about the nature of humans and what aspects were not, and they developed their own philosophy of human nature. For example, Epicurean philosophy had denied the existence of the soul as something distinct from the body. But the church fathers pointed out that there was an aspect of human nature that was not subject to the forces of nature, but could stand outside of the system. That was the ability to order the body and to resist acting out on desires and urges until certain times or even not at all. Also, the fathers demonstrated that when a person considers a situation and makes a decision, they do so by imagining many possibilities and choosing one of them. These capabilities of ordering the body and imagining possibilities and making decisions were by definition immaterial, and that fits the definition of the soul. Epicurean philosophy did not survive long after Christianity, partly due to Christianity's philosophical challenge. These arguments by Christians also challenged Stoic philosophy. Stoic philosophy had taught fatalism, meaning there was no free will, but only fate. Fate is a result of the cause and effect cycle of the material world to which we are under its full control. But as just seen, the decision-making element in humans is by definition above the cycle of fate, because we can step out of that cycle, imagine possibilities, and act on the ones we want to act on. We don't just react, but we act, meaning we do have free will. Some early church fathers have formerly been Stoic philosophers before their conversions to Christianity, such as St. Justin Martyr and St. Clement of Alexandria. Yet to think that Christianity only challenged other systems and that was its relationship with other bodies of knowledge is misleading. Christianity happily took observations from other fields of knowledge that lined up with reality and developed those for the spiritual benefit of all believers. But that is the topic of another set of episodes that will premiere a few months from now on education and spirituality and virtue and education. With all that said, what was the early church's teaching on human beings? The early church viewed the human being as made up of three aspects. These aspects from lowest to highest are number one, the instincts or impulses which are our urges and reactions such as hunger, thirst, anger, fear, love, as in attraction, hate, as in aversion, 
sexual impulses, and the such. These urges often lead to desire for very specific things. These are things that originate from our bodily needs and our reactions to things. These were called the appetites or passions. In the ancient world, the appetites were associated with the belly. Then too, the human also has emotions that move us to act. These emotions are not reactions or impulses, like those with the instincts, which are reactions. But these emotions are like courage and zeal, which even move us to act against threatening things, such as danger or enemies. They can also be trained to act against our impulses, urges, and reactions, such as to delay our reactions, or even not to react at all. This was called the spirited element. In the ancient world, the spirited element was associated with the chest, that is, with the heart. Then the third aspect that the human being had was the mind, which can reason. This stands above everything else because it is not locked in the system of cause and effect, but understands it, can stand above this system, recognize its nature, and come up with a variety of inferences and conclusions about what everything means and how it can be used. This was called reason. It was associated with the head. Now, all philosophies more or less had a comment about these three aspects of humanity, but it was Plato who first articulated it like this. He also said that due to the nature of the aspects, it is clear that reason should rule the appetites through the heart, or put in our words, the mind should rule the impulses by aligning our emotions to the mind. This is what it means to have the mind in the heart. The adjective for reason is the word rational. It is reason that is the image of God. The church fathers called this the rational soul, meaning the soul that can reason as opposed to the animal soul, which is the soul that can move and react such as that present in animals. The human being was defined by the church fathers as a rational animal meaning an animal with a mind, which is clearly in line with what we saw in Genesis 1 and is also a clear and philosophically rigorous definition. This understanding affected how the early church understood what it meant for God to become man and what is expected of us in the light of all this. So what does that mean for us? In short, it creates the guidelines for how we should live our lives. The church fathers understood sin in terms of this understanding of humanity. Sin was viewed to be a disorder between the three aspects of humanity, where the appetites rule a human's reason, taking it as its servant for the satisfaction of its urges, lusts, and desires. Further, this was also understood to be a disease which was not limited to one person, but this disorder spread like a disease among humans. How is this so? Well, when the person chooses to do what is worse than what their reason knows is better, this is the origin of sin and evil. We may also not have a clear understanding of what would be the better to choose in a specific case, but nonetheless, just like we often are unaware of what makes us sick, this lack of knowing, which results in bad decisions, also makes us sick. To give an example from the writings of the early church, we can take a look at a book by St. Athanasius, whose best-known book is the book on the Incarnation, which explains the significance of God becoming human. It also speaks about this understanding in humanity, 
But this is not the book I am suggesting we look at. I mean the prequel to this book. What prequel? On the Incarnation is actually part two to a two-part work. The first part, called Against the Heathen, explains what it means to be a human and what it means to be God. So when this first part is read, it further illuminates the significance of On the Incarnation in describing the significance of God becoming human because it explains what humanity is and its disorder as just explained and how the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ heals that disorder. I recommend all Christians and inquirers to read these two books because it will result in an extremely clear understanding of who we are as humans and what God has meant for us by His becoming human, which is nothing less than our healing and our restoration to the original image God had in mind for humanity. In Against the Heathen, St. Athanasius points out what is actually the characteristic understanding of sin in the mind of the early church. Sin is understood to be a disorder between these three aspects of humanity. It is related to the passions, the appetites, dragging the mind to be their servant and fulfilling their desires. St. Athanasius describes the fall of humanity as such, quote, Having departed from the contemplation of the things of thought, which includes God and spiritual things, and using to the full the several activities of the body, and being pleased with the contemplation of the body, and seeing that pleasure is good for her, she was misled and abused the name of good, and thought that pleasure was the very essence of good, just as though a man out of his mind, and asking for a sword to use against all he met, were to think that soundness of mind. End quote. From Against the Heathen, section 4. He gives an analogy, which was well known in the ancient world, and which pops back up in many of the fathers, of the goalless charioteer. Imagine you have a charioteer. He's riding a chariot, and the chariot is being led by two horses. One horse symbolizes the appetites, and it runs in one direction, and another horse symbolizes the emotions, the spirited element, and it runs in the other direction, and then you have the man who's the charioteer, and he symbolizes reason. What's going to happen if you let the horses run? The end result will be a massive crash in which probably the charioteer will be killed. The correct way to approach this is that the charioteer rein in and control the horses and guide them to the finish line. And that is how reason should rule the appetites through the emotions, through the spirited elements. This analogy, like I said, pops up many times in the early church fathers. Then he points out, Now the soul of mankind, not satisfied with the devising of evil, began by degrees to venture upon what is worse still. For having experience of diversities of pleasures, and girt about with oblivion of things divine, being pleased moreover and having in view the passions of the body, and nothing but things present and opinions about them, ceased to think that anything existed beyond what is seen, or that anything was good save things temporal and bodily. From Against the Heathen, Section 8. The idea is, while sin is related to the passions overpowering the mind, yet its desire for specific things leads to a vicious cycle of an increase of sin. While our urge, our appetite for food leads to hunger, and eating a proper amount in the right way at the right time is good, overeating is a sin because it gives way to the passions over reason. 
But say we are to eat a food we have never eaten before. Then we begin to desire that specific food. And that stirs up our passions even more. So it causes us to do a downward spiral caused by this disorder, which is a downward spiral into a life of gluttony, of sin. St. Athanasius then gives a beautiful analogy of the cycle of passions and desire which leads to the overpowering and submission of reason, saying, Just then, as though a man had plunged into the deep, and no longer saw the light, nor what appears by light, because his eyes are turned downwards, and the water is all above him, and perceiving only the things in the deep, thinks that nothing exists beside them, but that the things he sees are the only true realities. So the men of former time, having lost their reason, and plunged into the lusts and imaginations of carnal things, and forgotten the knowledge and glory of God, their reasoning being dull, or rather following unreason, made gods for themselves of things seen, glorifying the creature rather than the creator, and deifying the works rather than the master, God, their cause and artificer. Men, the deeper they go down, advance into darker and deeper places. He also explains the origin of the disorder and its end. So turning away and forgetting that she was in the image of the good God, she no longer, by the power which is in her, sees God the Word, after whose likeness she is made, but having departed from herself, imagines and feigns what is not. For hiding by the complications of bodily lusts, the mirror which, as it were, is in her, by which alone she had the power of seeing the image of the Father, she no longer sees what a soul ought to behold, but is carried about by everything, and only sees the things which come under the senses. Hence, weighted with all fleshly desire and distracted among the impressions of these things, she imagines that God, whom her understanding has forgotten, is to be found in bodily insensible things giving to things seen the name of God and glorifying only those things which she desires and which are pleasant to her eyes. St. Basil the Great also preaches on this understanding of humanity directly in his first Discourse on Humanity, which can be found in the small volume on the human condition published by St. Vladimir's Seminary Press. St. Basil stops and contemplates on what it means to be created in the image of God. He begins by quoting from Genesis, let us make the human being according to our image. That is, let us give him the superiority of reason. And let them rule, not let us make the human being and let them be angry and lustful and sorrowful. For the passions are not included in the image of God, but the reason is master of the passions. And let them rule the fish. As soon as you are made, you are also made ruler. And let them rule. When receiving authority for one year from the emperor, as a human from a human, as a mortal from a mortal, one receives it from one who does not truly possess it. For what authority does a human being receive in the soul? But you received it from God, not written on wooden tablets, nor on perishable leaves wasted on moths. But your nature has the divine voice inscribed in it. Let them rule. All these things belong to the human realm. Let them rule the fish, the wild animals of the earth, the creatures that fly in the air, the domestic animals, the reptiles that creep on the earth. It does not say, let us make the human being according to our image and likeness, and let them eat of every fruit tree which has fruit in itself. 
The things of the flesh are second. The properties of the soul are first. First, the power to rule was conferred on you. O human, you are a ruling being. And why do you serve the passions as a slave? Why do you throw away your own dignity and become a slave of sin? For what reason do you make yourself a prisoner of the devil? You were appointed ruler of creation, and you have renounced the nobility of your own nature. Suppose you were called as a slave. Why do you lament your slavery in the body? Why do you not consider great the sovereignty given you by God, that you have reason as master of the passions? When you see your master being a slave to pleasure, while you yourself are a slave only in body, know that you are a slave in name only. He has the name of master, but he has established his slavery by deed. You see him joining with a prostitute, but you despise her. How are you not master of your passions, while your master is slave of the pleasures you have trodden beneath yourself? Therefore, let us make the human being, and let him rule. Where the power to rule is, there is the image of God. From Discourse 1 on Humanity, sections 7-8. through 8. He also continues in another part, saying, And let them rule the fish. It was given to you to rule the irrational fish, Thus you became ruler of irrational passion. And let them rule the wild beasts. You rule every wild beast. So you say, what beasts do I have in myself? Indeed, you have thousands and a great crowd of beasts in yourself. And do not consider this statement to be an outrage. Anger is a little beast when it barks in the heart. Is it not wilder than every dog? Is not the deceit lurking in a deceitful soul harder to tame than every lurking bear? Is not hypocrisy a beast? Is not one sharp in insults a scorpion? Is not one who in hiding strikes out in revenge more dangerous than a viper? Is the greedy person not a rapacious wolf? What kind of beast is not in us? Is not the one mad for women a raging horse? For scripture says, They have become horses mad for women, each neighing toward his neighbor's wife. Jeremiah 5 verse 8. It does not say he spoke to the woman, but he neighed. It transferred him to the nature of those without reason, because of the passion with which he associated himself. Therefore, there are many beasts in us. Have you truly become ruler of beasts if you rule those outside but leave those within ungoverned? Will you rule truly in ruling the lion by your reason and despising its roar, but gnashing your teeth and emitting inarticulate sounds as the anger within all at once strives to attack? What is more dangerous than this? When a human being is ruled by passion, when anger pushes reason aside, not consenting to remain within, and takes upon itself governance of the soul. You are indeed created ruler, ruler of passions, ruler of beasts, ruler of creeping things, ruler of winged creatures. Do not have airy thoughts, nor be light and unstable in mind. You are appointed to rule winged things. You are out of place if you strike down eternal flying things, yourself being light and lofty. Do not be filled with smoke. Do not be flighty. Do not think things greater than human nature. When complimented, do not go above nature. Do not glorify yourself. Do not consider yourself to be something great. For thus you will be an unstable winged creature, carried about this way and that by an unsteady nature. Rule the thoughts in yourself, that you may become ruler of all beings. 
Thus the rule we have been given over the animals trains us to rule the things belonging to ourselves. For it is misplaced to be governed at home and govern nations, to be ruled within by a prostitute and be mayor of the city by public consent. It is necessary that household affairs be managed well, and that good order within be arranged and thus to receive authority over others. Since the word of scripture will be turned back at you by those you rule if your household affairs are disorderly and disorganized, namely, physician, heal yourself. Let us heal ourselves first. Nobody is condemned for not catching a lion, but one who will not govern anger is ridiculous to everyone. So one who does not prevail over his own passion is led to condemnation, while one who cannot prevail over wild beasts does not appear to have done anything worthy of blame. From section 19 on the First Discourse on Humanity. So what are the spiritually applicable implications of all this understanding of humanity for us? It affects multiple parts of our lives. The first is prayer. When we pray, it begins by using our reason to approach God. But when we pray fervently, we lift up our heart together with our mind to God. Over time, this leads to the transformation of the individual to grow into the likeness of God. A second area this understanding affects is fasting. Fasting goes hand in hand with prayer. While prayer focuses on the mind and heart positively, fasting focuses on the appetites negatively. The practice of fasting is a training to reduce the power of the appetites over humanity, which when paired with prayer strengthens the individual in the way of Christ. Immediately, the appetite for eating is put under control, and this affects many other appetites. Often, when we overeat, we become clouded up either due to the amount of food which raises our heart and breathing rates, makes us groggy, and thus weakens our ability to reflect and pray fervently. Or often, it is because of all the chemicals entering our body like proteins, which lead to a higher production of sex steroids, and this leads to a higher sex drive and often people become consumed because of their sex drives and must find a way to relieve it. Now the point here is all human appetites are proper if they are satisfied at the right time, in the right way, and through the right means. But overindulging in any appetite makes us focused solely on the body, and this leads the mind to become the servant through which the bodily desires are satisfied. This is not the proper order. This is why the church has always prescribed fasting, and even when not fasting, moderation of all desire. A third area this understanding affects is our social life. Because the disorder between these three aspects of humanity can spread in humans through imitation, much like contagious diseases spread through contact, we must be careful of the company we keep. Otherwise, we will end up picking up their inclinations to be carnal. The same is true if we befriend those whose lives are ordered rightly in seeking God. We will pick up their inclinations as well. This is why more often than not, those who grow up with godly parents and family members also grow up to be godly themselves. A fourth area this understanding affects is the liturgy. The liturgy is all about refocusing us and our Lord Jesus Christ. His life is portrayed in the liturgy and our responses in the liturgy forms the appropriate response by the church to his life. While I will not get into much detail here because there are three upcoming episodes on the liturgy, in short, recent research in psychology has found that the practice of rituals 
helps raise up the mind over the emotions and the appetites, especially the emotions of anxiety and grief when they are out of control. These emotions, as many of us are aware and may have even experienced ourselves, can totally shut our minds down and they can transform our characters for the worse. But the practice of rituals regulates emotions and by so doing allows people to regain control of their minds and focus on their goals and gives us a chance to move toward achieving those goals. The liturgy, with all its aspects from the Eucharist to festal liturgies at the end of fasting periods to funeral liturgies, certainly does that by its rituals centering on Christ and thus reorients us toward our goal to be with Christ for eternity. And that allows us to live in accordance with that goal in the present and transforms our lives in the process. I will cover this engagement with modern knowledge of rituals in more detail in my episode, The Liturgy in the Early Church and Modern Applications, which will be the third episode in a three-episode exploration of the liturgy in the mind of the early church. But since we are on the topic of how the beliefs of the early church engage with modern knowledge, how does this belief of the human being engage? It can be done by looking in a couple of places. The great author C.S. Lewis, who read quite a bit from the Church Fathers as evidenced from his quotations across his books, and also in the development of his ideas in such books as Miracles, took this ancient understanding of the human being and developed it in the context of the 20th century's education system, science, and modern society in his book, The Abolition of Man. While this book is one of his shortest, it is certainly the hardest. At first I was encouraged to read it, because it was short. The actual text is less than 100 pages. And also because one of my friends had pointed out that there was a similarity between his thinking and some of the ideas found in the Desert Fathers. But with all that, I was surprised because this little book demanded so much reflection from me. To give a comparison, I had read Mere Christianity, Surprised by Joy, some of his articles collected in the book God on the Dock, The Discarded Image, and Miracles before I had read this book, but this book demanded the most reflection of all. After I finished the book and I had taken copious notes, I kept thinking about it and the ideas in it for a couple of months. Its applications are serious, and its observations are prophetic. Lewis points out that modern society has departed from this understanding of the human being because they have departed from Christianity, along with its philosophy, such as on what it means to be human. He points out, for example, that modern education has totally ignored what we would think of as the subjective experience of humanity, and has pretty much moved subjective experience into the realm of illusion. But he points out, in line with the Church Fathers and with ancient philosophy, the subjective experience is not illusory, but is a response to something in the world and objects around us. He gives the example of observing a beautiful waterfall, and how a popular literature textbook said that when someone calls the waterfall sublime and pretty, that this is really nothing but explaining our feelings. Lewis criticizes this, saying, The feelings which make a man call an object sublime are not sublime feelings, but feelings of veneration. What does that mean? Sublime explains something outside of us. Veneration describes something within us. Such thinking leads to destruction because it raises up students who have been told that such literature is bad but others good. 
without explaining why and what makes some things good and some things bad. What has ended up happening in education, and this trend continues today, is that they have divorced the mind from the heart. And if the heart cannot align with the mind, then it will align with the appetites. And this is exactly what we see happening, where even the most educated students who know better look forward to Friday night parties where drinking, drug usage, and sexual activity are all practiced with abandon. That is, with no mind as to what these things can lead to. It used to be that education was intimately tied with the development of the whole person, and not just what type of work that person could do with his or her knowledge. There was a moral dimension to education. I think this divorce may be why so many Christians readily separate the academic from the spiritual. But as a church, we need to go back to show how the two can and should be integrated. This understanding of the human being also touches upon psychology. Interestingly enough, this ancient Christian understanding of the human being lines up quite well with modern findings in psychology. Whereas we tend to think of our emotions as something instinctual, as we saw earlier, the fathers clearly saw them as things to be aligned, either with our impulses and urges, or with our minds. Modern psychology has documented that goal-setting and working toward achieving goals affects the emotional regulation of a person. This has been masterfully argued in the book Maps of Meaning, The Architecture of Belief by Dr. Jordan Peterson. For example, those who major in highly rigorous fields of knowledge, such as architecture, law, or medicine, spend years of study and intense examinations and moving around to other states, in some cases, multiple times before they finally begin their careers. This can be emotionally draining and can discourage anyone to not go into these fields. But while this is the case, most of the students who go into these fields are emotionally stable. Stressed, yes. Some days unbearable, yeah. But not often to the point of quitting or not being able to function. This is because these students have set clear goals in their minds. And as such, their emotions have lined up with the goals. So every step they take on achieving their goal to have a certain career creates reward, emotional regulation, and stability. On the other hand, those who seek immediate gratification or even those who don't have clear goals for life have their emotions align with their impulses, so their lives become centered on eating, drinking, resting, sleeping, and sexual release. This eventually leads to frustration and seeking more and more with ever less satisfaction. This is the cycle of sin. With this engagement with modern knowledge, the early Christian understanding of the human being has significant pastoral implications, especially for father confessors. They can consider this makeup of the human being when guiding their spiritual children. This way, we will live lives of meaning, virtue, sympathy, spiritual growth, and transformed lives as we follow our Lord Jesus Christ, who himself became human and shared in our lives in order to heal us by his example. And we can share in his life by making him the model on which we shape our lives and grow to resemble his likeness to the world and draw all humans to him. Thank you for listening. 
If you found this episode to be beneficial or interesting, please subscribe to my podcast and share it with your friends and family. You can also visit my website, danielhannawriter.com, where I have written articles and a list of recommended books, including much of what I mention on my podcast. I have also written on many different aspects of the Christian faith, from the Bible to spirituality to apologetics, book reviews, dialogues, patristics, and philosophy.